Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 225 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to Text Expander for sponsoring our show. Communicate smarter with Text Expander. Gather, perfect, and share your knowledge. Recall your best words instantly and repeatedly. Learn more at textexpander.com forward slash podcast. And we'd also like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who have experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. In our last episode, we talked about our presentation on cybersecurity for collaboration tools at the recent College of Law Practice Management Futures Conference. Some thought our perspective was a little pessimistic, let's say. In this episode, we decided to go even darker and try to, to shine a light on the dark web. Did you see what I did there, Tom? I did. What's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be discussing the Wild West of the so-called dark web, uh, what legal professionals and others need to know about this little-known part of the internet. In our second segment, we'll talk about Gartner's uh, latest uh, top 10 strategic technologies for 2019. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. Uh, But first up, the dark web. Like most things, uh, the internet has many facets. Uh, Not all of them are well-known or even particularly good. Uh, One of these less-known parts of the World Wide Web uh, is what we're going to be discussing today, the dark web, where all sorts of good but also disturbing, probably illegal and dangerous things go on. Um, Not a place we'd want to visit, Uh, but definitely a place we all need to know about. Dennis, what in the world got you thinking or interested about this topic? So I saw this blog post uh, by Chris Hoffman on the How to Geek blog um, recently. that was called, What is a Dark Web Scan and Should You Use One? And it got me thinking about the dark web, first of all, what it is, and then the the tools that you might need to access the dark web and what might be out there. And, and he talked about it in the context of, you know, having your, your data compromised and your information, so security number, credit card numbers, other things like that, being out and stored and available on the internet in this, this sort of secret um not well-known place generally known as as the dark web and um, this cottage industry that's grown up around the dark web saying that we can we can go out and search it and find out whether your data is out there so it just got me thinking a lot uh, about the whole notion of the dark web and as we we look at it, when people talk about uh, you know, 
hackers and, uh, you know, all this information out there and all these bad things happening, uh, state actors, organized crime, uh, you know, all sorts of different things happening on the internet sort of below the surface in this area called the dark web. It, it made me think this is something that probably we all need to know a little bit more about it, even though, as I, as you said, time, I'm not sure it's a place that any of us needs to visit, uh, you know, for, for fun. We, we may have to, uh, at some point or have someone visit it for us if, if certain things happen. Um, but I also thought it was an interesting topic to put through our uh, technology competence analysis framework. So if, if lawyers have a, an ethical obligation of technology con- uh, competence, then I think the dark web is one of these one of these topics where you say, for lawyers, is this a relevant technology um, that a lawyer needs to keep abreast of? And and I, I think it's always interesting to ask that question about, about uh, new technologies and something like this, the dark web, which is a, a very old technology. Well, and I think that the answer to that question, although we probably should ask this question maybe again at the end of this segment, um, I, I would argue that most lawyers who represent clients, and if we think mostly in terms of family law or criminal defense, um, knowing about what the dark web is, what it's capable of, what can be done, I think is extremely important. Um, depending on the type of law you practice, depending on what you do, it, it may be less important um, to you and your practice. But I think that at a minimum, lawyers understanding what it is and, and what, what its capabilities are, what you can do, why you should stay away from it, all of those things I think are going to, as we discuss, are things that all lawyers should at a minimum have some knowledge of to do. But I think maybe what we want to do first is let's distinguish. Um, I think we're going to do a, 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 defin- a formal definition of the dark web in a second, but let's first uh, distinguish it from what other people may have heard. And, and, I've, and I've been at several conferences where people have, I, I would say mistaken, but that's probably not a fair word to use, mistaken the dark web for the deep web. Um, you may have heard, and I remember, on, at least on this podcast and certainly on my blog for years, talk about the invisible web and and talk about how that's different. Now, what we consider to be the deep web or the invisible web is what we would consider to be the part that is not searchable by search engines, that's not indexed by Google or other major search engines. So uh, I would think that um, most government databases, uh, anything that you need a password to get into, to search, to get information from, um, Google and other search engines, they get stopped at that door and they can't get in and search it either. So that's part of the, the deep web. I think the estimates right now are that search engines can really only index somewhere around 4% of what's available on the internet. So that's I would call that mostly the deep web. And then I think really kind of where 
where the comparison goes is, is the dark web part of the deep web? Uh, because it's likewise not accessible via a search engine. It's not indexed in the same way. Um, and the way that you get to it is considerably different, as we'll talk about in a minute, um, from actually accessing the internet. Am I heading down the right road, Dennis? Do you want to maybe give a definition of, of kind of what the, the dark web is or what we'll be using for this, uh, for this episode? Yeah, I, so I, I always think of the dark web as this sort of probably a very small subset, it, it's, although it certainly gets a lot of attention in the news, uh, but a small subset of what we call the deep web or the invisible web. And some people would say that, you know, Facebook it's is one classic example of of a deep web. It's a non-searchable part of of the internet, but it's definitely not part of what we call the the dark web. So, as in all things, let's go to Wikipedia for the definition. They say the dark web is the World Wide Web content that exists on dark nets. Uh, so that's this sort of nefarious uh, area of of the internet. And then they overlay networks and they and they use the internet, but they require specific software configurations or authorizations to access. And so I, I think that that is a notion. So typically you are not accessing the, uh, the dark web through your standard browser and you're not using Google or other search engines. So there are uh, certain characteristics. It's definitely going to be hidden websites where you may have to have certain knowledge or certain credentials to even know that these things exist. They're not accessible by the standard browsers. You may need a special tool. And generally you're using this area of, of the internet um, anonymously, very anonymously for a variety of purposes. So it's beyond like uh, where you'd say the deep web or the invisible web, you might need a username and password. This is really a more uh, anonymous uh, part of the world. And I think that for me, Tom, as I look at the dark net, I, I think that non-browser access and probably um, this, uh, I don't know if it's fair to call it a browser tool, but um, there's definitely a tool called Tor, T-O-R, that I think is probably key to the to our thinking about the the dark web. Well, that's right. I mean, I think that that you kind of described it the right way. That um, the characteristics are it, it's not something that wants to be found easily. I, you know, I although the dark web uses URLs and and maybe not exactly traditional web addresses, but there are addresses to get to sites. There's no guarantee that those URLs are going to stay the same from one day to the next. They change frequently. You've got to have that level of information. And Dennis, as you say. It, there are a couple of ways to access uh, access the dark web. Probably the most common is using Tor. Tor is known um, as the onion router, um, and and when you're when you're using Tor, you are in what is known as onion land. And the reason for that is is that there are those who would compare the dark web to an onion. There are a number of layers that you have to navigate and get from one layer to the next before you can actually get to where you're going. And for that reason, um, getting into the dark web can sometimes be slow. The connect connectivity is not always um, good in that area. But uh, you have to have a special tool. Um, you and, and in a minute, I'm going to kind of walk through the steps to take if you want to do it yourself and, and really how complicated and how many steps it takes to really do it in a way that's safe uh, and effective. But the, I think the bottom line is, is that all of these tools, uh, 
Tor. There's a couple of others, Freenet, uh, the Invisible Internet Project, and, and they're all using IP addresses that have been masked so that you can operate anonymously. And so the, desi the desire is, or, or design from this, is that the tools that you have allow you to be anonymous. Although I think that we're going to need to kind of point out that just because you're using these tools doesn't necessarily mean that you can stay anonymous on the dark web, which is part of the the dangerous aspect of going online, which is you can still give up quite a lot of information about yourself to people that you probably wouldn't want to see the information um, if you don't take care of yourself when you uh, when you venture out onto the dark web. So let's talk a little bit about there are actually some what I'll call the good uses of of the dark net, and they relate to anonymity. So it's a place where whistleblowers can share or release information or communicate with the press or do other things and do it anonymously and safely for them. If uh, people are being censored, it's another outlet for them. If they're protesting or they're, uh, you know, working against government authorities, it's another place that could use. So any any place where anonymity is important for accomplishing what I'll call good works, the dark net can be invaluable in that. However. Most of it's called the dark net and uh, for a reason, and it's generally considered a bad place. And at time on in Wikipedia, they list 11 types of uses that for the dark net. And most of them are, are not good things. Um, so let's talk about what the dark net is most commonly known for. And probably I think that starts with the most famous example, which is, is, Silk Road, if you want to talk about that. Well, you actually, I don't want to talk about that. I want you to talk about that. <laughs> um, so the, let me let me let me step back for a minute and say, you know, one of the interesting things that I learned preparing for the podcast that I really wasn't aware of is I I, I was aware that that um, you know obviously you can be anonymous um, on the dark web. What I didn't realize was that actually the the United States has has something called the U.S. Internet Freedom Agenda which allows people who are in countries um, that have repressive regimes um, that, that don't allow you to, to express yourself, like you say, Dennis, that might censor you or otherwise try to arrest you, um, allows you to access information that might otherwise be unavailable to you because you happen to live in that country. I also didn't realize that there's actually a, a different version of Facebook. It has its own version on the dark web that you can access and get to um, for those who are unable to do that. So I found that very interesting that there are, there are, are many ways in which the dark web serves good purposes, but I think you know more to get along the lines of what um, of what you're you're talking about. And although I want you to talk more about Silk Road, I mean, just some of the those eleven things that I can think of off the top of my head are that you can use the dark web to uh, sell drugs uh, or or buy drugs. You can buy guns. Um, yeah, there is human trafficking that takes place on the dark web. Um, certainly, one of the major uses of the dark web is stolen credit card numbers. Lots of stolen identity information, child pornography. I think it probably goes without saying there's quite a lot of that. Um, I think one of the things that you'll see a lot out on the dark web are data dumps 
uh, from data breaches. I think the Ashley Madison data breach is one example of where a lot of the information from that uh, was all put onto the dark web so that people could go through and get passwords and other types of information. I think that's how a lot of the people who were clients of Ashley Madison got threatened is people uh, were able to access it on the dark web and use it for whatever means that they could come up with. So, uh, Dennis, you want to talk a little bit more about the Silk Road? Yeah, so the Silk Road was probably the most famous example, and people can dig into the more details if they want. But basically, the idea was created this online marketplace uh, called Silk Road where basically anything anything goes in uh, or anything went and you could buy and sell anything and you know from drugs to you know to to weapons to hiring hitmen to you know so the, the stories were amazing so it was like everything that you would uh, you would be afraid of in your worst nightmare about the internet and uh, it was kind of rolled up and uh, and and shut down. So, but it gave people a flavor of what might be out there and 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 what might be possible. And I think that's if if you have a, an idea of what the dark web is, it probably comes from the reporting around uh, Silk Road. And as Tom said, it there's. Uh, you know the stories of what you can find out there are uh, amazing, and uh, but a lot of it is that identity, personal information, and the concern that it's all out there and it can be purchased. Also, the uh, tools you can use to break into networks can be you know made available there or purchased there. So all sorts of different things can go on, and then there is that notion, uh, you know, terrorists. Uh, uh, like I said, it's like every night nightmare that anybody would have about the internet can probably be found on the dark web or so we're told i mean obviously there's not a lot of data and there's not a lot of mapping of of the the dark web so there are a lot of risks but i I also think that what people discovered is that a lot of these things uh our scams, their hoaxes, their ways to uh, trick people who think they're buying some some other identity inf- information to giving up their own identity. There are obviously lots of money money scams, uh, usually typically involving Bitcoin. So it is a a, a very wild uh, place that. Probably if you don't know what you're doing at all, uh, you're more than likely just to be completely ripped off. Okay, so we've been talking about a lot of the reasons why the dark web is not a good thing, why there are a lot of bad things out there. Um, I, I think that for the purpose of lawyers knowing this, just to know that it exists and it's out there, that's a good thing. But are there ever, I think we probably should should talk about, are there ever occasions when a lawyer would need to access the dark web on behalf of a client? What would some of those circumstances be, Dennis? What you typically would think of is if you wanted to find out whether passwords or accounts or identify, uh, you know, identification information had been compromised or released, then you say, if I did a search and I found that uh, social security number, credit card numbers, those sorts of things were out there and available, and especially if they were being sold. Um, that could be useful in in any number of cases or, or representations. I think to the extent that you uh, 
you know, find the the tools of that somebody is could use to get on the dark net as part of your regular discovery or forensics identification, it should tip you off that there could be some other things going going on, and it may give you some indications that are or follow up on some suspicions you might have that somebody has, is using uh, what I'll just call hacker tools because you you can tell that they they at least uh, downloaded them from the dark net. So those are probably the the ones that come first to mind for me, Tom. Well, no, I, I agree. I think those are generally the, the 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 reasons why a lawyer would want to access the dark web. But I think that I, I I personally can't think of any good reason why a lawyer would want to access the dark web on their own. I have no desire. I mean, even though even though I may have some type of morbid curiosity, like I would want to watch an automobile accident or something like that to be able to go out and see some of this stuff. I really, I mean, just hearing about all the things that can happen to you when you connect a computer to the dark web are, are pretty much enough for me to say, if if I were a lawyer and I needed to get to this information, I would be hiring someone immediately to do it for me and not to, uh, not to, not to do it myself. And so I, I kind of was, uh, to demonstrate that, I consulted, you know, who I usually do when I want to talk about security and things like that, talked to my, our good friends Sharon Nelson and John Simic, and they kind of provided a good list of here are the things that you need to do to access the dark web. So you've got to first utilize a dedicated computer. It's got to be its own computer dedicated to accessing the dark web. You have to create a virtual machine on that computer so that you can access it. You've got to make sure that your operating system is patched. There can't be any flaws in it. It's got to be the most recent version of your operating system. Um, You have to be able to make sure that the administrative access is changed so somebody can't take control of that computer. When you access the dark web, you need to make sure you're using a network that's not connected to any any way, shape, or form to your network. Um, make sure that you've got security software that's installed. Uh, we talked about using that Tor browser tool to be able to, to access it, so you've got to install that. You've got to use a VPN before you connect to it. All of that just seems to argue to me, why do this yourself? And then, and then there's other rules. Don't transmit personal information while you're out there. Don't print anything. Don't open any downloaded files while you're connected. Um, all of this to me suggests if you're going to use the, the dark web, make sure you get somebody who knows what they're doing and can lead you through it safely. Right. And so I think that's the notion where we say there are the, the white hat hackers uh, who can help with this stuff. And so I think that you would want, you're typically looking where there would be some indication um, that something that you had been, that you were working on uh, either could have been compromised and information released to to the dark web or that your client or somebody else involved in, in the matter that you were working on was accessing the dark net. As Tom indicated earlier, 
probably access to darknet is gonna you know based on what statistics they have is gonna suggest uh child pornography and uh you know maybe maybe a few other things uh it could be that you know there's a lot of stolen intellectual property so people might access uh you know movies music and, and stuff like that uh, probably less of that it seems like a really complicated uh way to do that but i'm with tom that this is probably not a place that you want to go it sort of reminds me of you know like some high school kid saying like oh i have this great idea i've i found somebody who who works for the mafia and I'm going to buy dope from them. And, uh, you know, like they collect money from their friends and they go and they get scared out, you know, for their life and the money taken away from them, they end up with nothing. And you go like, who could be surprised about that? So I think there is that notion where if you're going to be involved in this or need to be involved with the dark web, you wouldn't have somebody holding your hand who knows what they're doing, or probably you wouldn't just pay them to, to do it for you. Because Tom, you're basically talking about setting up like almost a clean room uh, to access it or a very, very clean computer. And I'm with you, I would probably buy a Chromebook and that would be the only thing that I would, would use it for. And it would be be a weird situation because it, it's that activity in itself is going to look very suspicious to, to anybody who sees it. And I guess that's as good a place as any to end this segment. Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors. Text Expander is a productivity multiplier. Lawyers love Text Expander because with a short abbreviation or search while typing, Text Expander can produce cover emails for invoices or signing instructions, insert templates for consistent meeting notes, perform accurate date math on the fly, and instantly present things you retype all the time. Text Expander runs on Macs, iPhones, iPads, and Windows and works in any application. Visit TextExpander.com slash podcast for 20% off your first year. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. It's Gardner time again. This time, the well-known tech analytics company has released its 2019 top strategic technology trends. While learning to use the tech we have today right in front of us is obviously incredibly important. I have always believed that having an awareness of what tech trends and the big tech trends that are out there heading our way is something that we just can't forget about. And it's uh, I just think it's vital to pay attention to. So the Gartner lists are always a good resource on this front. Their strategic tech trends uh, for 2019 give us a good snapshot of some of the biggest of the big picture trends. Tom, what struck you as particularly important on this list? Well, I have to say two things about it. Um, the first thing is strategic technology, 
I've got to be honest, has never interested me as much as the practical applications of that technology. Um, so I look at this list and I have to tell you that I don't think a, a, a list of technology has ever made me feel so dumb. There were so many things on this list that I either felt I didn't fully understand or that I didn't really had never even heard of. For example, um, never heard of the term digital twins before. That's on the list. Um, I went and looked, you know, looked it up to see what is digital twinning, which is defined as the digital representative of a real world entity or system. So I assume it is taking and making a virtual version of it so that you can work with it. If there's a problem with that real world system, then you can uh, manipulate it in the virtual world and come up with solutions for it. Um, Interestingly, this has been uh, a thing since 2002, so not sure why it's just becoming a trend in 2018, but, uh, but there it is. Um, I do like the idea of smart spaces as a trend. I like the idea that they're calling it smart spaces because it feels like it's um, moving, it, recognizing that the idea of the smart home or the smart office um, it's expanding, that there are more places that can be smart. And so the idea is that there are spaces out there, whether it's a personal space or an office space or a business space or a public space that can become smart. Um, I really like that idea. Um, I would argue, because I like to talk about ethics so much, that one of the most important ones on the list, uh, as boring as it may sound, is digital ethics and privacy. Uh, technology is taking more and more information from us. Um, and the ethics part means um, it's important for us to be able to trust the technology that we use and the people who make that technology need to be able to instill trust in us to use that technology, that they're doing the right thing because otherwise we're not going to use it. They're not going to be successful. Um, so I think that's one of the major trends that I'm seeing uh, that I see on that list that that um, that interests me and I think is important. Um, Dennis, I know you have completely different things from the list that uh, that were interesting to you. You know, one of the things I really like is we can look at these lists. <laughs> the ones that interest you most are like always the ones that are completely the opposite of the ones that, that interest me. So, I mean, to go over the list, I mean, there's a couple things that are pretty obvious, you know, Internet of Things, uh, you know, AI, although I think the spin on AI is kind of interesting. So that they're talking about uh, AI being used sort of collaboratively in uh, development of, of software, which which I think is really interesting. So to, to pick out the ones that, that I liked, talk about augmented analytics. Uh, so I think that there is this notion that uh, I would call it sort of like cloud of you know, analytics or data analytics as a service. So we get some smartness built into analytical tools and make them easier to use and, and then use them on a, a per use basis. I think that's super interesting. There's a notion of the empowered edge. And I think there's this ebb and flow between sort of like smart at the center and dumb out at the, the outside in networks. And so I think that because of the processing power and the other things that we have out there that the 
the sort of devices connected, the internet can have more power and capabilities built into them, which takes some of the burden off the, the whole network. So that'll be important in internet of, of things. Um, blockchain, of course, and I, you know, these days people are so, they've so had it with blockchain and I'm, in some ways I'm, I'm happy to hear people say that because um, there's so much going on there that I think is so significant. I'm, I'm glad that uh, people who think they, uh, they know everything are not paying attention to it because they're, they're missing some important things. And then I think the one that's out there on the radar, probably about five years is interesting because of its, especially if its security uh, implications is quantum computing. Uh, because the quantum computing works the way that people think it can, um, it puts a lot of the uh, the approaches that we have um, to encryption and other security uh, methods at high risk. So I think watching the developments in, in that area is, is going to be uh, super important. So now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So the only thing that makes me unhappy about my parting shot this week is that it is not a Google Assistant skill, but it's an Alexa skill. There's a whole new set of, of actually skills that Alexa has put out called Skill Blueprints. And what it does is, is that it allows you to basically create um, your own customized skills to things. So for example, um, you can put together a chore chart that will let the people in your household know what chores need to be done. The reason why this is so interesting to me is, is that my dad is getting uh, to the point where he's forgetting a lot of things. I like the idea that there's a skill that you can use to basically ask Alexa to remind you, you know, tell me what things I need to do before I leave the house each day. Or um, tell me what things I need to do to get the house ready when it's going to be freezing weather. There's a skill for a house guest. Welcome your guest to the, to the house with a guide on your home and your neighborhood where they can ask easy questions and get back answers that you give to it. I think it's really fascinating that you can start customizing the information that Alexa gives you. My only hope is that Google can come up with something that mimics or uh, is similar to this because I think it's a really useful tool to have and it's and it's free to use. Yeah, I really liked the, this one too when I when I heard about it, Tom, and it's something I'll, I'll probably play with. But the, the guest thing was, was uh, especially cool. The guest could say like, where are the guest towels and things like that. And you can customize this whole experience for people. So yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Although I, there was this part of me that said, uh, I wish you could do a skill that said, you know, uh, where did I leave my keys? But uh, I realize that's sort of beyond the capability of uh, of Alexa at this this point. Yeah, it's not going to help you in the moment of where you left something, but it can, both Alexa and Google, can remind you of certain things. If you wanted to say, you know, remind me what... <laughs> Remind me what my spouse's anniversary is, um, and it will tell you what it is. So you can actually train train it to remind you certain things. Um, it's not going to tell you where you put 
things in the moment, but uh, it's getting smarter every day. Well, and also you could have the guest ask, you know, when the guest asks, what's the Wi-Fi password, you know, it'd be great to just have Alexa rattle that off for them. So, yeah, I like I like that parting shot time. So I have uh, something that's based on the, the class I've been teaching at Michigan State, and I've just grown to like the, the two tools that we've been using to look at business models and to turn business ideas into actual action and to move them forward. Um, so, and they both come from uh, strategizer with a Y.com. Uh, one is the business model canvas, and the other is the value proposition canvas. And these are these are some of my favorite tools where you start to, once you use them and you say, wow, everything looks like I can, I can use this tool with, you know, so Tom and I wanted to figure out like how to promote our book better. We're going like, oh, we could just uh, use the business model canvas and figure out all, you know, the components of that promotion project or a new business or whatever. And so I really like that. And then the value proposition canvas is super simple and it puts your focus right on the customer or the, the user of what you're doing. And it says, what, what do they hope to, to gain if, if they make a change in what they're doing and what are the pains they're hoping to remove. And then you can look at your product or service and say, you know, what what pains does it remove? What gains does it deliver? And, and see how it matches up. And then you can kind of shape your product or service. So really simple tools, graphic, visual, um, but they really allow you, uh, they really give you a lot of insights. So uh, highly recommended and um, really enjoying working with them with my students. And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn, on Twitter, most of the social network venues. Uh, leave us a voicemail, though. Uh, we still love to get voicemails. We can feature your question or comment on our B segment. That number to call us at is 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast... I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. And we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kennedy Mile Report on the Legal Talk Network. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network. <laughs>